Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and this episode is Q&A number 70. Before we get into today's questions, big thanks to our sponsors. First we have Precision Hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com. They make electrolyte products that match how you sweat, but they are much more than just an electrolyte manufacturer. They are hydration consultants and have tons of great advice on their blog for how to think about race, nutrition and hydration, and also on their newsletter, their social media. And on this coming Monday, founder Andy Blow is back as a podcast guest for another great episode on just that, how to plan your race, hydration and nutrition and how they might impact each other. We also discussed some new developments in the field like hydrogel nutrition products that now exist like Martin and like, and also the possible development of uh, hydration monitoring wearables that, for example, Gatorade are uh, producing. So tons of interesting stuff coming up on Monday. Make sure you tune in for that interview with Andy Blow. In the meantime, check out the free hydration plan that you can get on precisionhydration.com. And if you want to order any other electrolytes, you can get 15% off with the promo code thattriathlonshow15. And big thanks to Roka that you can find on roka.com. If you are preparing for early season races uh, and uh, you are somebody that know that you might suffer in the cold water, then uh, it might make sense to have a look for options for thermal wetsuits. And uh, Roka do offer their wetsuits as a thermal option. They have the Maverick Pro Thermal, which is a great option if cold water tends to be a challenge for you. Uh, This wetsuit, like all Roka wetsuits, comes with the patented technologies RS2 centerline buoyancy and arms up construction for optimal mobility. And you can get it along with anything else that you might want to order from Roka for 20% off with the promo code TTS20. So the question for today comes from Patrick in the United States who writes, Hi Michael, love your show. Thank you for this important resource. I have a few questions for a Q&A episode and I hope that I didn't ask too many. Uh, some background about me. I am a 35-year-old man with a spouse and two children aged, ages 3 and 6. I am a year into coming back to triathlon after taking a five-year break because of the kids and I recently finished Ironman 7.3 Atlantic City in faster than my goal time thanks to your 7.3 distance intermediate training plan. I live just outside of Washington DC and I'm planning to do Ironman 7.3 Texas in my hometown of Galveston in April. Here are my questions. The bike course is out and back with high tailwinds expected for the way out and headwinds for the way back. Nearly all of my bike training will be on the indoor trainer in the winter. What, if anything, can I do on an indoor trainer to prepare to ride 56 windy miles? So uh, for this question, by far the most important point is that um, yes, you might be stuck on the indoor trainer during winter, but as soon as you get the opportunity to go outside and ride, when it uh, when the weather warms up and you can go outside on the weekend, do that, because there's so much more to riding a bike than just raw power. And to acquire those skills, you you really have to go outdoors. There's no uh, there's no alternative. So in an ideal world, a ride outdoors at least once per week year round Uh, but uh, obviously if uh, you have uh, cold weather during winter in washington dc which uh, you do then that might not be possible so 
wait until the weather allows and uh, as soon as that happens try to get in that weekly outdoor ride on the weekend do your long long ride outdoors and also try to hope hope for some wind for some of those rides and maybe if you can look at the weather forecast you might want to switch your bike and run days around if you happen to get for example a sunday that is very windy you might switch a saturday bike to the sunday instead to get used to to feeling that sort of sensation of riding in hard winds but on the indoor trainer what you can do is to practice your aero position and aim to get very comfortable with it so that you can stay comfortable in it despite hard winds Uh, it's obviously it's not going to help you completely you still need to do that outdoor training uh, ideally do some outdoor training in the winds but uh, but being comfortable as comfortable as possible in the air position that is a good starting point and that is uh, that is the at least you know the requirement to to play in the game of being able to to bike well in hard winds the other thing that you can do and this is off the bike it's strength and conditioning and specifically core work so get in a very regular dose of anti-extension, anti-rotation, and anti-flexion work. Some simple exercises of each category are planks, pallet presses, and farmer's carries. So you can uh, Google them or YouTube search them, and you'll find plenty of information about those. So core work to strengthen and stabilize your core, that is going to be very important and beneficial when you are riding in hard winds. Other than that, what you can do in preparation is to plan the race and your pacing so this is where a tool like best bike split might be useful and uh, it's not the be all end all by any means and what i recommend is probably you might want to give the premium version a go because then they are using a lot of weather points and advanced weather data which for a windy course might be beneficial but then Really, uh, what you should be looking at, what is the most practical in terms of how to use the plan that you get, is to just simply look at their cheat sheets, which simply lists a few different uh, categories of riding. So you have flats, headwind, flats, tailwind. You have uh, you have mild up minor uphills, and you have major uphills, and you have moderate uphills, and you have uh, minor descents, and and so on and so forth and you have a power target or power range to hit for each of those categories so both terrain and wind is included in those different combinations so there's just a a few a handful of different categories where you should roughly memorize what your power target might be Uh, and it's not necessarily for everybody i'm not saying that that it's the best way to go about planning a race for everybody but it's something that you can have a look at to get a feel for well how much harder should i be riding in the headwind compared to in the tailwind for example and you might get a feel for that relative additional power you might need to be putting out and and then on race day at the end of the day uh, you should be able to do the race without any sort of data if if needed like if your power meter fails you should be prepared to do that but uh, preparing your race by looking at something like best bike split and having a look at what good ideal pacing theoretically might look like that can then inform your practical uh, decisions on race day in the real world so uh, so those are some tips but uh, to be honest most of the work that you do doesn't really have to be different from any other race build the engine and build your skills as well as possible so do get out on the road as soon as you can and uh, 
and build your engine that you can do of course very well on the trainer it's perfect for that and uh, this will together put you in the best possible position to perform well on that uh, Galveston uh, bike course the next question that Patrick writes is uh, I'll have to ship my bike to the event two weeks before the race how should I modify the plan since I won't have a bike for the last few weeks note that I'm using your 723 intermediate training plan so there are two answers to this question uh, so if you want to perform to your potential or close to your potential if this race is an an a race to you so to say then you absolutely have to find another bike to train on during that period a replacement bike there's uh, no alternative so what you can do is to reach out to local tri clubs they might have bikes themselves or their members might have bikes that you can borrow or rent and it doesn't have to be a tt bike it could be a road bike because you will have been putting in the work already on the tt bike by this time you could also go to a bike shop or a bike rental and rent a bike from there or worst case scenario you could get a one month membership to a gym with what bikes but i say worst case scenario because chances are that you will not be as consistent with that as you would have been at home on your trainer and also your setup might not be ideal with things like uh, cooling having a fan having a place to put your computer or your laptop for using swift or whatever you want to do your entertainment so to say so uh, so i don't think that that's the best option i think the best option is to rent or borrow a bike for those two weeks so uh, the reason i'm saying this is that simply two weeks away from bike training there's no question that you will be detraining you will keep your uh, your basic uh, fitness your your central adaptations for sure from the running and the swimming but uh, there are specific uh, endurance adaptations of each sport each different sport that will detrain quickly once you stop training in any given discipline so you won't be able to race to your full potential if you don't bike the last two weeks and uh, but uh, i don't think that that's uh, any reason for concern you're close to a big city so there must be a lot of option options to get a bike for a couple of weeks but uh, let's say that uh, if uh, you're not really uh, too uh, too focused on like your getting to your optimal performance you're mostly focused on getting around and having a good time uh, then you can absolutely you can do that without doing any bike training the last two weeks there's no question about it uh, most of the hard work is done anyway at that point in the plan uh, so uh, so in that situation if uh, you are mainly focused on having a good time getting around then what you can do to modify the plan is to uh, take one third of the bike volume and replace that with running and take one third and replace it with swimming so let's say in any one of those weeks you might have six hours of uh, cycling or nine hours of cycling uh, i can't remember off the top of my head but let's say six hours because you're towards the end of the plan so volume is coming down uh, then you would uh, obviously not be biking but you could add two extra hours of running and two extra hours of swimming and i think all of the running should be aerobic zone one zone two and uh, most of the swimming should be aerobic but it's okay to add some additional intensity on the swim because the plan isn't too heavy on intense swimming or swimming in general uh, just for uh, time crunched athlete reasons so to say so uh, so that's where you can add some intensity even if you feel that your body can handle it so but that's up to you to decide the next question is should i do most of my run training on a treadmill at the gym or outside in the cold 
Does it matter as long as I'm consistent? Note that I think the treadmill is boring and I always run faster and happier outside, but I also don't have a lot of experience running in the cold. So no, it really doesn't matter as long as you're consistent. The one thing that uh, does matter that might be a bit of an issue is uh, if it compromises your performance in your hard workouts. Uh, We'll get to that soon. Uh, But first, most of your running, which is aerobic, easy running, uh, I think that you can just as fine do that outdoors in the cold. That's what I'm doing. I've been doing it for years in Finland, and it's always been my preference as well. I think it's boring to run just steady endurance on the treadmill. I do think it's kind of fun to do intervals and harder workouts on the treadmill, though. That's I don't have a problem with that. But I wouldn't want to do my easy endurance run, runs on the treadmill, so I always go outdoors, even when it's minus 20. Uh, you just dress for the occasion, but uh, this is a point that is quite important to make. You actually do warm up really well when running, so it's probably much more common that people overdress rather than underdress. Uh, so... Uh, so that's yeah to summarize that point all of your endurance running i think you can you can do outdoors there's no detriment to that just dress appropriately and uh, and you'll be fine you and you will be happier so it's actually better than doing it on the treadmill if you are happier and feel uh, reasonably comfortable so uh, the consideration around more intense workouts comes down to temperature temperature and uh, how icy the roads are so the issue of icy roads is um, especially difficult if it's also dark and it's difficult to see. But in either either way, whether you're running when it's light outside during daytime or during dark hours, uh, if the roads are icy and there's a risk of uh, slipping and hurting yourself and you therefore have to hold back and can't really run to your potential in that workout, in those harder workouts, then in that situation, I would recommend choosing the treadmill so that you can do the workout to the best of your abilities uh, without having to compromise the intended purpose of it or the intensity of it. So so that's uh, my take on icy roads. For easier runs, endurance runs, you can easily do it on, the, on ice, very icy roads. It will be slower, but you just keep the effort and heart rate the same and then the effect of the body is the same. But that's not going to be... Uh, possible to do for faster more intense running uh, depending on how icy the roads are of course then the other thing is temperature Uh, in at some point it's going to be too cold to really do good hard workouts outdoors it can be a risk factor for uh, for straining a muscle and uh, and it can just be generally uncomfortable even just for your uh, for your breathing so so it might not be possible and it's a bit individual but to give you some guidelines uh, for me personally let's assume here that now the roads are dry and slipping and hurting yourself isn't a factor we're just dealing with temperature I'm very happy to do a fairly intense workout in zero degrees Celsius, so 32 Fahrenheit. And uh, and I could do something like uh, a tempo or a threshold run down to minus 5 degrees Celsius or 23 degrees Fahrenheit. I probably would not do intervals faster than threshold uh, in sub-zero Celsius or uh, sub-32 Fahrenheit. And if it's sub uh, minus five Celsius or sub 23 Fahrenheit, then I would, at that point, roughly, I would even move a tempo or threshold run to the treadmill. The next question is, uh, I'll definitely do at least some of my training runs outside in the cold, but I do not have a lot of experience running in the cold. 
Do you have any special tips for running in sub-freezing temperatures, especially regarding how to layer clothing, what types of materials to wear, etc.? So yes, the first thing I already mentioned, don't overdress and uh, expect to be cold for the first 5 to 10 minutes and then you'll warm up and then that's when you're dressed appropriately. But uh, I've actually spent the last three months in Finland uh, because of uh, an apartment renovation in Portugal. So so I've been running through the winter here and uh, well, we have had a really mild winter with probably minus five Celsius or 23 Fahrenheit has been the coldest that I've had to run in nothing colder than that and most of it has only been around freezing or even slightly slightly warmer than freezing uh, but uh, that being said what i wear and what's been good for this around freezing temperature has been uh, i've used a pair of winter running socks and uh, i'm not a material geek at all so don't ask me what material it is but they're reasonably thick and uh, feel very warm in this temperature and these have been essential. I needed to get them when I got here and it was pretty cold. And I realized that the socks that I had brought with me were all thin socks and my toes and feet were freezing. So those are essential. I wear a pair of decent gloves and, uh, well, decent. I mean, there are gloves. I think it's some sort of mountain bike gloves, something cheap that I bought online years ago, but they get the job done. I think I bought it from Wiggle. Uh, so... Uh, in these temperatures, they are just fine. I remember in, back in Helsinki running in sometimes minus 10, minus 15. Uh, I would at some point change to alpine skiing gloves and look really funny. But uh, yeah, that was needed at certain temperatures. But for this, whatever gloves keep, your, keep you warm enough are, are good, I guess. So socks and gloves are really important because it's easy to freeze your toes and fingers otherwise. And uh, I wear my normal running shoes also on icy days because i'm very comfortable running even on the iciest of roads after many years of practice so i've never used anything other than normal running shoes even when running through winter no special winter shoes or spikes or anything like that and i wear a normal pair of running tights uh, normal synthetic material uh, nothing uh, nothing specific for winter or anything like that just the things that people would wear in spring or or fall depending on if they're wearing tights and not shorts and i wear two long-sleeved base layers that are same you know tight fitting synthetic material that running tights are more or less or probably some different synthetic material but but same kind of uh, kind of thing it's not something that is uh, it's they're good base layers but, but nothing special nothing super duper merino wool this this and that uh, and uh, yeah that's it two of them have been just fine uh, and uh, i wear a reflective vest for the darkness to not get hit by a car i would wear a hat only when it gets to minus five or colder so 23 fahrenheit or colder and at that point i might also have a buff around my neck or i might wear it around my wrist just to take it if needed and uh, yeah that's it actually for most of this winter when it's been above uh, freezing and or even around freezing i have also been i've been mixing and matching sometimes wearing the running tights and but quite often just wearing normal running shorts around freezing that's perfectly fine i think but especially as you get to three or four degrees celsius so maybe 37 fahrenheit uh, at that point i think i'm very comfortable running in shorts so it doesn't sound like a lot or look like a lot a lot of people think that i'm running in way too little clothes but uh, actually as i said you warm up very quickly when you're running 
So uh, so that works really well. But of course, you need to find what works for you. But I'm generally not somebody who is super warm or anything like that. I'm not super cold either, but just, I guess, average. And, and this works for me or in these kinds of temperatures. So as for materials, again, I'm really not at all an expert, but I know that a lot of people swear by merino wool. I'm sure that that's worth checking out. And uh, I think that my socks might be merino wool or something like that. They are the new purchase for the year for me, and uh, I really needed them, so they're nice. But other than that, all of my clothing is normal synthetic fabrics, nothing expensive, nothing fancy. Uh, All of it is many years old. My running tights have a pretty big hole right around the crotch. Uh, so yeah, I guess I I don't really <laughs> like to spend my money on on clothes beyond what I absolutely need. So and that's reflected in in the clothes that I wear when I'm out running. But uh, yeah, I absolutely needed those socks, so I got them, and that was absolutely worth it. So the point here is that you might already have a lot of what you need. So don't think that you need to spend hundreds of dollars on clothes. And again, remember to not overdress. The next question is, I swim in a 25-yard pool very close to my home and will have no access to open water before the race, but I do have plenty of general experience swimming in open water and am comfortable in open water. I can access a 50-meter pool, but it is far away, about 40 minutes each direction. Is there anything I can do to best prepare for the open water swim? I can practice siding regularly and wear my wetsuit for a few practice swims in the pool, and I can find a way to make the trek to the 50-meter pool for a few sessions as I get deeper into race-specific training. Are there any other recommendations? So all the things that you mentioned there are good suggestions, and I don't really think I have any other ones. Uh, Since you say that you are generally comfortable in the open water, that's the key. That's means that you can get away with with doing it like that if you would not be comfortable then uh, you probably should if at least if you're seeing this race as an a race uh, take the time to go and uh, and swim in some open water body but for you i think that what you suggest sounds just fine and as you know most of these are already prescribed in the plan things like incorporating siding wetsuit swimming uh, etc but feel free to do more of those things like citing in more of the sets than what is actually prescribed it it will only help you Uh, so uh, and uh, as for the wetsuit yes do it as prescribed and you can even add it in some in in some additional pool swims but uh, maybe not in in that many additional pool swims unless you have any issues with it that you need to sort out but if everything works fine then uh, i think that the ones that are prescribed will be enough Uh, so you'll have suggestions in the plan for which ones those are and uh, I think that getting to that 50 meter pool for the race pace workouts where you are uh, prescribed to swim them in swim them in your wetsuit, that would be the ideal situation. So those will be your few specific race and open water simulations, those race pace uh, sets and in the wetsuit, in the 50 meter pool. And naturally, they do include a lot of sighting. So yeah, that's nothing nothing more to add to that. The next question is, I recently left my job and I'm searching for another one. This means I temporarily have more time for training for at least a few months and I want to make the most of it. I am planning to add low intensity volume both by adding sessions and extending sessions and making sure to focus on strength training. Is this the right plan? Are there any special things I should do since I expect to have the extra time for only a few months? 
So in summary, I think, yes, that is the right plan. Uh, Add more volume at low intensity and add some strength training for sure. The plan in itself uh, already has enough intensity, so so that's uh, taken care of. You only really need to to concern yourself with adding more more aerobic base training, with one possible exception, and that would be that you could be adding some swimming that is a bit more intense. Uh, still, don't add only intense swimming. Uh, add at least as much uh, low intensity swimming as you add high intensity swimming, and uh, make sure that you keep a good balance in that swimming. But uh, I think that since the plan is relatively low on swimming because it is made for time crunch athletes and the swim has less relative importance and it's also the most time consuming to train for with the commute and prep and stuff Uh, that's the area where you could be uh, benefiting from adding some intensity as well but other than that when when it comes to the general just increasing aerobic volume some things to consider are to increase it gradually uh, because it's easy for to to think now to yeah I can easily go from eight hours per week to fifteen hours per week when I don't have my forty hour per week job, and yeah that's all well and good in theory. But do you feel the same after three weeks of suddenly having jumped from eight hours per week to fifteen hours per week? Probably not. So uh, so the thing that you need to do is to uh, to add to make sure that you have a gradual approach and you are very uh, you are very disciplined with that. Uh, but uh, if you only have a couple of months, uh, a fixed time period, as you say, that you will have this opportunity to train at a higher volume, then what you can do is to be a bit more aggressive than somebody else might be. So what you could do, you need to find the right recipe for you and how much you can handle. So after each week, you should uh, be feeling that, well, I can fairly, w- without any two big challenges, I can do another week like that. But as an example, if you're training eight hours per week right now, then you could do you could increase by two hours per week every two weeks so the next two weeks 10 hours then the next two weeks after that 12 and then 14 and then finally 16 and this is aggressive this is a big increase but this is knowing that you'll go back to your normal training volume after that fixed time period and it's also knowing that you have a lot of time uh, outside of training for recovery for sleeping for eating etc so so you won't have that additional stress of of the job so so that's important don't take on tons of additional projects like diy or uh, you know starting to freelance or something like that and expect that that you're going to be able to do that because then you're just replacing the work stress with other stress and still adding the training volume at an pretty aggressive rate so that's not a good idea but if you if you only add stress in terms of training and you remove the work stress then then that can work for somebody however hypothetically not for you but somebody that wants to make a, a volume increase that uh, that is not for a fixed period of time it's uh, it's something that is for the foreseeable future then they should uh, be much slower much more gradual in their volume build so maybe instead of increasing by two hours every two weeks they could increase by one and a half hours every four weeks would be more more like it i think and be especially careful with increasing your run volume some people like to use the 10 percent rule of only increasing by running by 10 percent per week I do find it that rule uh, pretty arbitrary, to be honest, and and I think that a lot of athletes can do 
much bigger increases than that and they are absolutely perfectly fine but uh, what you need to do is know your athlete or know yourself if you're self-coached and uh, look back at your training logs and find out what sort of run volume ramps you have been able to sustain historically without injury and uh, but this assumes that you are at a similar fitness level and conditioning then then you can probably sustain that same ramp again but if you don't have that information, then uh, 10% of increase in running, it definitely will make sure that you, you keep the run volume in check. So that's not an issue. It's it's not that it's too high. It's that it's maybe a bit too conservative for, for some athletes. Because if you think about it, a lot of athletes are only really running maybe, let's say, three hours per week. And then to add, that's 180 minutes. So you're adding 18 minutes. So you're adding... Uh, six minutes per run if you're running three times per week let's say so so it it takes a long time that way and i I do find that a lot of athletes can can increase by quite a bit more than that so 10 percent is very conservative in that sense but just know yourself and and um, yeah be honest with yourself about what you can do and obviously don't risk anything it's better to err on the side of caution uh, so and but the point there is that be more careful with running than you are with swimming and cycling it's not not to be careful with running it is to be more careful but uh, but also the 10 percent rule that is very common isn't necessarily the be all end all and finally f- as for whether to extend workouts or add workouts um, it might be that you're mixing and matching a bit uh, i'll link to an interview that i did on uh, michael lieberson's and andrew buckrell's endurance innovation podcast and uh, that uh, in that episode we talked about frequency and duration so that will give you a good uh, a good idea of what what's smartest for you to do in your situation whether to focus more on extending workouts or adding more workouts next question you once said your race that race day swimming should be uh, breathing every two strokes uh, instead of bilateral breathing or breathing every four strokes but that uh, you often do bilateral breathing in the pool why should you breathe every second stroke in racing? What's the advantage of doing that? If breathing every stro- second stroke is better, why not make that your norm and usually train like that? All right, so to clarify, uh, I don't think I have said that you should not just do that in racing. Uh, I, hope that, I hope that I haven't said that because that's absolutely never been my opinion. What I think I've said about uh, what I'll clarify now is that uh, breathing every two strokes is better whenever the intensity reaches a certain level and i would argue that for most it is uh, already at a tempo effort so moderate kind of intensity that is my general recommendation anything that's tempo effort or harder whether it is training or racing you breathe every two strokes to maximize your performance uh, so we come back to that point again to don't compromise performance in training but when you're doing your aerobic zone 2 endurance like swimming then my recommendation is to at least incorporate bilateral breathing uh, quite often i'm not saying that you absolutely have to do all of your uh, aerobic swimming like that but uh, but i think that you should incorporate it because it gives you a chance to practice stroke symmetry at an intensity where performance isn't compromised from that because chances are when you're breathing every two strokes that you might develop some asymmetries in your stroke and bilateral breathing is very very good to get rid of that of course there's also the argument that you could be breathing every two strokes but you could be doing 100 breathing to the right and 100 breathing to the left and always alternate and be as strong 
both ways. And that is a good approach. That probably goes a long way to ensuring that you that you don't develop those same asymmetries. But I know at least for me, uh, when I do two-stroke breathing, it's generally, at least in the sets that I really want to perform and hit specific times, uh, I generally breathe to the right because I'm just slightly faster that way. Uh, so that means that uh, I do run the risk of developing slight asymmetries. And therefore, in the endurance swimming, I swim with bilateral breathing. Also, the other benefit of bilateral breathing in those endurance sets is that it puts a little bit of a break on almost so that you don't go too hard in this low-intensity swimming. It's like the talk test when you're running. You know that if you can have a conversation with a friend, then uh, you're uh, you're pretty good. You're doing well. You're not going too hard. And, and it's the same sort of thing for uh, bilateral breathing in swimming to some extent. It's not foolproof by any means, but, uh, but it, uh, it has some benefit that way too. So it should be said that some athletes don't fit perfectly in this model. So an, ex- an athlete with a really high stroke rate might actually in some cases be more comfortable doing uh, bilateral breathing at uh, a higher relative intensity than somebody else because for them with a high stroke rate, the time between breaths still isn't any longer than the athlete with a much slower stroke rate doing uh, breathing every two strokes. But the thing here is that... Uh, there are very few age groupers that actually have high stroke rates because ha- having a high stroke rate requires a really good uh, fitness level and uh, most have significantly lower stroke rates than the pros have even the pros that look really like they're almost gliding they're obviously not gliding but you know somebody like a richard varga might look like they are so if you aren't in the in the 80s with your stroke rate or at least high 70s then then this definitely shouldn't apply to you so uh, in my opinion, again, try to get the best, best of both worlds. Uh, do breathe every two strokes to maximize your performance and get all the oxygen that you need in when you're swimming harder. But then uh, do the bilateral breathing to, to make sure that you don't develop asymmetries when you're doing your endurance swimming. And, uh, and also it might help to add a bit of a break so that you go at a right uh, intensity level. The final question is, how often should I change my bike tires and how do I know when I need new tires? Should I change tubes a few weeks before a race, even if the tubes have been fine to reduce the likelihood of a flat during a race? Uh, Thanks. So um, the most obvious with the tires is that if it has serious damage and tears, you should replace it immediately. But uh, if that's that's pretty obvious. But uh, other than that, there are... On many tires, there are uh, tire tread wear indicators. So they are usually marked with the letters TWI, at least on continental tires they are. And you can see that on the side of the tire. And uh, then when you look on top of the tire at uh, that location where you have the, the indicator, you should be able to see the actual indicators, which on continental tires are small little holes in the tread, not going all the way through, but going down a little bit. And the idea is that once you can no longer see those holes, uh, you know that they should be there because you can see the TWI on the side. That doesn't wear off easily. Uh, but uh, but if those holes, uh, the, the tread of the tire is worn enough that those holes can no longer be seen that's when uh, when you should change the tire uh, according to the manufacturer and i think it makes sense to to follow that advice another thing you can look out for is that once the tire gets old it uh, loses a bit of its rounded profile and goes more flat as the tread wears out and uh, yeah that's all and also the tread pattern if there is one it can start to disappear uh, and uh, yeah that's similar to 
the the treadwear indicators uh, wearing off but uh, yeah, i think the treadwear indicators is what you should look at more so than the tread pattern because that's what's meant to be uh, used as the guide for when when the tread is getting too worn and when it should be changed so so that's it for the the tires when to change the tires really look up your own brand and uh, what sort of treadwear indicators they are using and uh, and then see if they are worn out or not and as for tubes yeah i mean i think it uh, it is smart to race on new fresh tubes to just minimize the risk of having a flat uh, to be absolutely perfectly honest i've now now switched to tubeless tires i use uh, continental gp 5000 tubeless but uh, uh, as long as i raced with uh, normal clincher tires uh, i think that the first couple of seasons i was pretty good at actually always changing to new fresh tubes before each race but then i got lazy about that and stopped doing it and well touch wood i've been lucky no flats in races so far but uh, the smart person would probably just minimize the risk and change the tubes uh, even if it's just a, a few percentage points of a lesser risk I, I mean yeah i would take it for for a big race like that so there you go thank you for your questions i'll link in the episode description to everything mentioned and uh, thank you to everybody that sen- that are sending in questions keep doing so to michael at scientific and that's michael with a k uh, i'm sorry you had to wait wait patrick with your question um i know that you sent it in some time ago and uh, yeah i want to uh, be clear with everybody that uh, i do get in a lot of questions and i try to answer uh, all of them but there there is quite a lot to go through so so sometimes those questions end up piling up and queuing up and it's not always possible to get to them very quickly but uh but yeah that's no that's no reason not to not to send them in and uh, and i do also have the the average listener in mind or the the majority of the listeners in mind in that uh, if it's something that's super specific or um, downright weird i might not <laughs> do a q a about that but if it's something that is uh, applicable to a lot of listeners i will go for those topics and this is an example of lots of lots of questions that are applicable to a lot of listeners so that's why uh, it's included of course but it just in this case i had a, a bunch of questions come in so it ended up taking a bit longer than i would have wanted but that's just the way it is sometimes if you're looking for coaching or training plans go and check out scientifictriathlon.com and everything we have to offer there and thank you to our sponsors precision hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com go and take their free online sweat test to get a hydration plan for your next race and use the promo code that's triathlon show 15 to get 15 percent off your order of electrolytes and thank you to Roka for sponsoring the podcast. Go to roka.com and check out their wetsuits, dry suits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, and prescription glasses, and get 20% off your order with the promo code TTS20. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon. <laughs>